Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to the 82nd episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. But this week, uh, we have Aaron Kramer subbing in for Matt. So Aaron, welcome back to the show. Thanks. Thanks for First having First time me. with me and you, so we'll give this a run and see how it goes. Um, so we'll take the first few minutes, uh, obviously, to recap the performance for the month and the year, which is the same currently since we're on the tail end of January. Um, these numbers are as of the market close on January 27th, and this data is from Coifin. S&P 500 index is down 0.14% for the month and the year. The Dow down 1%. The NASDAQ Composite Index up 5.72%, so big tech uh, starting to lead again in the market relative to a bunch of other sectors. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 Index uh, up a strong 6.8% still year to date. The Vanguard International ETF, ex-United States, up 1.91% for the year. Uh, the three-month T-bill currently sitting at 0.08%, the two-year Treasury yield sitting at 0.12%, and the 10-year Treasury yield is now sitting at 1%. Um, so a couple of things before we get into tweets, articles, and research from the week, Aaron. Um, I know earlier in the week, um, Janet Yellen was confirmed as the new Treasury Secretary. Uh, she was the former head of the Federal Reserve and said that she would be open to considering taxing unrealized gains to increase government revenues. Um, so I think it would just be good for us yeah. to go over how this currently works and you know our thoughts on it. So um, capital gains are come into play when you're dealing with a taxable investment account, right? So it's a non-retirement account. If you hold a investment, so let's say a stock or a bond in a taxable investment account, and you hold it for more than 12 months, you're taxed at the capital gains tax rate, which is less than your ordinary income tax rate. Okay. Right, right. So it's that that money is taxed differently than your income that you get from your employer. Right? Exactly. Um, and the benefit of that, obviously, is to lower tax rate. To be able to get that, obviously, you have to hold the investment for longer than 12 months. If you hold the stock or the bond for less than 12 months, it's just taxed at your ordinary income tax rate. Um, so that's a huge benefit for investors. And this is something that is looking at being taken away. And I just feel that, you know, this disincentivizes investment. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and I think it causes a bigger problem than it solves. I agree. And I mean, taxing unrealized gains, you're not even paying that capital gains tax until you sell the stock. Right. So exactly. you can hang on to it as long as you want and not pay taxes on it. So taxing unrealized gains, I think, I think it could create increased volatility in a sense as well. Right, exactly. And that, I mean, so if, if they decide to tax unrealized gains, does that open it up to your home, right? Like if you own right. your home, 
Yeah, so are they going to mark to market that every single year and say, and who is to say what your home is worth? Exactly. Is it going to be one entity? So I think it causes a lot of problems. And I'm glad you brought that up because I didn't mention that when I was talking about it. But yeah, as of right now, you're not taxed on that money until you physically sell something, exactly. right? And realize the gain. So having this unrealized gain become taxable, and I know that they're talking about it for wealthier individuals that make over a million dollars or something like that. I think you know, I think it's going to cause more problems and cause more headaches than it actually solves. Yeah, I think no, I totally so, agree. Um, again, that hasn't been put through as, as legislation, but that's just something that's being talked about right now. So we'll keep an eye on that and, and update people uh, when necessary. Uh, number two, Aaron, is obviously this has been a really, really interesting week uh, going on with some individual stocks that have had meteoric rises this week. And for people that aren't uh, in the know on what has gone on this week, um, there's a stock, it's called GameStop. So <laughs> when back in the day when we wanted to buy video games for Xbox or PlayStation, you'd go to GameStop. I right. remember that back in the day, I'd go to the mall and go to GameStop. Um, but now all that stuff is done online and through the, the systems themselves, the gaming systems themselves. Right. Um, so, you know, GameStop was a very heavily shorted stock by a lot of prof professional large money managers. And for those that are not um, aware of what shorting a stock means, um, you know, let's just kind of go over this for a second. So obviously, if you buy a stock, you're expecting that stock to go up, right? Um, the opposite side of that is that people are allowed to borrow someone else's shares and sell it to somebody else to short the stock, expecting that the stock is going to go lower. And then the thinking, Aaron, right, is that that money manager is going to you know, wait for that stock to go down a certain amount, buy it back cheaper, and return the borrowed shares so they just made money, right? Exactly. Um, well, GameStop was one of the most heavily shorted stocks by institutional investors, and there has been uh, a lot of retail buying that stock up and bidding the, the price up. And what it's done is it's caused what we call a short squeeze where these professional money managers who have these big short positions in have to start unwinding these short positions because they're losing a lot of money right now. Right. And, and they get squeezed out because they have to have that margin requirement just right. because they're borrowing essentially the stock from their broker. It's not they like they're doing this with their own cash. Right. But they have to put up some cash, um, and that's kind of how they get squeezed out. Right. So, so and, and the larger issue with this, Aaron, I think, is that there's one there's one hedge fund that's already, you know, gone, not gone down, but they've taken a large hit from this. The question is, how many other hedge funds or professional institutional money managers are out there that have had the same position on? And like where you were saying with these these margin calls that they get because they're not you know doing this with their own cash, right. it's borrowed money. Um, you know they're going to have to sell out of other long stock positions, and is that going to cause a broader market sell off? Right. I think that's the big question. Um, that is this going to cause a a uh, you know, a, a quick violent sell-off like we've seen recently in the past, just because you know people have to sell their long positions to cover their their short positions and get out of stocks like GameStop. 
Um, so again, it's just a really interesting time yeah, right now. It's been it's weird. There's uh, a there's a few names on the list. Bed Bath Beyond as well as another one. It's yep, just AMC, the the movie and entertainment yeah. uh, company. So again, I you know with this and obviously there's been stories on Twitter and and Reddit of people making you know millions of dollars from this type of stuff. And I'm you know. I'm indifferent about it. I, I don't, if you can deal with that, then all the power to you. I'm happy for you. I've seen stories about people that have, you know, made money on a day trade and are paying off student loans or right. donating money to charity. Me personally don't have the stomach for it. No, I don't I, think I ever will. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll kind of touch on that when we get uh, into the financial planning topic of the week, but that's just not for me. I don't care to sit in front of a screen 24 seven and, and try to try to make money like that. But, yeah. um, all the power to people that can do it, but yeah. it's just, a, I, it's kind of like flipping a coin. Right. <laughs> to me, the way I'm looking at it is, is this going to cause a broader market sell off because you have a lot of large money that are in these positions that have to unwind some long positions to cover their short positions. Exactly. So, um, we will keep an eye on that. Um, and then I guess just because we had a question about this, Michael uh, submitted a question and said, what are your thoughts about GameStock and its meteoric rise? How is this possible? Well, I think we I think we just covered that and went over that. Um, but, you know, when this is why I'm not a fan of dealing with shorts, because <laughs> the loss is pretty much unlimited. unlimited yeah. Um, so I just I don't like to, to get into that stuff. Um, so moving on to, uh, tweets and research from the week, Aaron, the first one I had was from Ryan Dietrich that, uh, he outlined the Dow Jones industrial average and how it's performed under each president. Um, so on this chart that he tweeted, uh, it gives the Dow's total return when they were in office and their annualized return. And just to compare apples to apples, I think we have to go on under the, the annualized, annualized return. Right. Um, so Donald Trump, the annualized return of, uh, the S and P 500, or excuse me, the, the Dow Definitely. Jones industrial average was 11.7%. Under Barack Obama, it was 12.1%. George Bush, negative 3.5%. Bill Clinton, almost 16% per year when Bill Clinton was in office. Uh, Ronald Reagan, uh, averaged 11.3% return. Um, Dwight Eisenhower averaged a 10.4% return. Um, so the thing that I wanted to take away um, from this, Aaron, for listeners, yeah. is that it doesn't matter who the I president know. is. It doesn't yeah. matter if they're a Republican or a Democrat. There's been times in the market that Republicans in office, the market's done really well and it's done really poorly. And it's the exactly. same thing for Dem Democrats. So I feel like I continue to beat my head against the table <laughs> when people try to tell me that it matters who's in office and who's not. Um you know, it's just one of those things that you can't control it. Don't worry about it and just stick to your plan. Right. Yeah, that's, that's exactly my thoughts is it really doesn't matter for the average investor who's president. Just sort of stick with your long term goals. Invest like you normally would and you'll be fine. Right. You know? All right. And now this this next point is what a lot of people should focus on more than than just, uh, you know, who's in office. Uh, it was a tweet from Brian Feroldi on January 16th on how long it takes to become a millionaire if you invest. This is a cool one. I like this. Yeah, this is nice. And then as a reminder, you know, past performance is not indicative of future returns. Um, but Brian used historical data from an S&P 500 reinvestment calculator. So this was based on historical returns of the S&P 500. 
So he tweeted, how long it takes to become a millionaire if you invest $100 a month, it would take 45 years. If you invested $500 a month, it would take 31 years. $1,000 a month would be 25 years. $5,000 a month would be a millionaire in 10 years. And $10,000 a month, you'd be a millionaire in six years. He says, if you want to speed up the process, focus on your savings rate. Yeah. I mean, I think that points like to the other the other uh, chart that we showed there. The president doesn't really matter. Just focus on things that you can control. Right. And your savings rate is something you can control uh, for sure. Um, I did a little bit of math when we were prepping for this. Um, so I just wanted to kind of make it sort of like more tangible for the average person. Mm -hmm. So I went on census.gov and found out what the average household income across the whole United States is. Um, it's 68,700. Okay. So if you're saving 500 a month, that's about a 9% savings rate, which I think is kind of reasonable for the average person. Right. So in 31 years, the average household can become millionaires just by sacrificing 500 bucks a month. Right, exactly. No, that's a great way to put it, Aaron. And I think that if if people or people in our industry framed it that yeah. way, you would have a lot more people <laughs> saving, but it's just never framed that way, right? right? Um, and then obviously you have you know, interruptions down the road. If you get married and have to right. pay for a wedding or have kids, you maybe you can't save uh, 9% of your income. But I think just starting off and saying, hey, at least nine or 10% of my income is going directly to saving for retirement. And that's never going to get touched. That's in fact, the last thing that's going to get right. cut if we need to cut our budget. Um, because, you know, when you put it in this frame of, you know, a million dollars, I could be a millionaire in 31 years if I'm just saving, you know, $500 a month. It's actually really doable for yeah, a lot of for people. Sure. Um, and obviously there's people that, you know, can't afford to do that. But for a lot of people out there, like you just mentioned, it's definitely doable. Yeah, absolutely. it's not out of the question. Um, this next piece, actually, I'm going to switch the, uh, switch around what I was going to do here, Aaron, just because this kind of goes along with what you were just saying. Yeah. It was a piece, um, written by Morgan Housel on his blog, the collaborative fund on December 17th in 2020, and it's titled last man standing. And he talks about the compounding returns, um, and you know, the magic of compound interest. Yeah. So I think that this would just go really well with what we were just talking about. So I'm just going to read a brief excerpt from it. Um, so Morgan says everything worthwhile in investing comes from compounding. Compounding is the whole secret sauce, the rocket fuel that creates fortunes and compounding is just returns leveraged with time. Earning a 20% return in one year is neat. Doing it for three years is cool. Earning 20% for 30 years per year creates something so extraordinary it's hard to fathom. Time is in time is the investing factor that separates, hey, nice work from wait, what? Are you serious? The time component of compounding is why 99% of Warren Buffett's net worth came after his 50th birthday and 97% came after he turned 65. Once you accept that compounding is where the magic happens and realize how critical time is to compounding, the most important question to answer as an investor is not how can I earn the highest returns, it's what are the best returns I can sustain for the longest period of time. That's how you maximize wealth. Charlie Munger, who was Warren Buffett's right-hand man, says the first rule of compounding is to never interrupt it unnecessarily. 
Interrupting it can happen in many ways. The most common is finding a strategy that produces high returns for a period of time, then abandoning it when it inevitably has a bad few years. And I would say right up with that is decreasing your savings rate exactly. or taking a 401k that's, loan. That's the first thing that I thought is if you can avoid a 401k loan or a, having to make an early withdrawal, it that just impacts that compounding. So you're just setting yourself back to where your timeline's a little bit longer now. So, right. I mean, compounding's huge. That's why every time I meet with sort of do retirement planning with clients, those last five years are always kind of make the biggest difference because right. the money's grown so long and then compounding just keeps getting larger and larger. It's kind of like a stair step. Mm-hmm. So those last five, 10 years sort of make the biggest difference. Right, exactly. And, you know, it's hard for people to realize until they start getting you know, a balance in their accounts where, you know, compounding at, you know, between six and 10% per year really starts to make a dollar difference. Oh yeah. It starts to be more, more than what you're actually contributing. The compounding starts to outpace it. Yeah. But it's hard for people to see that when they start with, you know, a hundred bucks and a 10% return on that is only $10, but you have to think about that. And, you know, and, and that's why if you've never done this before, I would, highly recommend searching for um, like a a hypothetical growth calculator on Google and just playing around with the numbers, play around with contributing $100 a month compounded at 7% rate of return for the next 40 years and see what that comes up with. And then play around with your savings rate and the the investment performance. And again, that'll make it tangible, tangible for people to see what the potential is. Yeah, I think it's pretty surprising for people because I don't think they realize how long that can compound and yeah it, and it people can get to be some pretty pretty juicy numbers <laughs> right exactly and if you've never done that before the early you know the the cop out is you know i'm never going to be able to get there right you know saving a hundred dollars a month that's never going to do anything for me but making it tangible i think that makes a big difference for sure um so moving on to a blog post uh the first of two that we're going to discuss today written by ben carlson on his blog a wealth of common sense it's titled markets that are definitely not in a bubble so the thing that everyone's (laughs) talking about aaron right now is are we in a bubble when is it going to pop and you have all these talking heads in the media saying that we are in the bubble so i think this was timely for this article and the thing that i want to point out is that no matter what point in time we're at, there's someone or people or a group of people that think we're in a bubble. Oh, for sure. Okay. So <laughs> Ben starts this article out by listing all of these headlines that say that we're in a bubble. Okay. So back on January 11th on 2010, there was an article from Business Insider saying U.S. stocks surge back towards bubble territory. That's interesting because we were in a raging <laughs> bull market for the next 10 years. Right. Uh, another one, May 11, or May 3rd of 2011 from Business Insider again, why the stock market looks like the tech bubble of 2000 all over again. Interesting what happened after that. <laughs> uh, March 27th of 2012, Robert Schiller eyes another tech bubble. December of 2013, Nobel Prize winner warns of U.S. stock market bubble. 2014, time to worry about the stock market bubbles from New York Times. And this just keeps going on and on and on and on, Aaron. So I, I want to remind people that there's someone or a group of people every single year that come out and think that we're in a bubble. Okay, right. um, That's always going to be how it is. And people just need to take that and put it out of their minds. Right. <laughs> well, and then these these news companies want to report this because it gets them views and right. clicks. Get, and gets it's... clicks. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It, it pays their bills. Exactly. Right? Um, so 
Ben starts this article by saying the longer this goes, the louder the chorus of bubble callers will get. And maybe they'll be right eventually. Bubbles are basically an American pastime. There are plenty of other markets that are certainly not in a bubble. Here's my list. Emerging markets, not in a bubble. Emerging markets have virtually gone nowhere since 2007. They just recently broke out to all-time highs for the first time since 2007, Aaron, on a price base. So they just hit new all-time highs since 2007. I would not call that a bubble. No. <laughs> and since the onset of the great financial crisis in the fall of uh, 2007, emerging markets are up just 3.7% percent per year against an annual return of 9.4 percent for the s&p 500 can you imagine if the s&p 500 was still treading water from the 2008 crash another area of the market european stocks not in a bubble european stocks have had an even worse run than emerging markets since 2007 underperforming even the aggregate u.s bond market uh, he shows a chart of the past 10 years of returns for the biggest five economies in Europe compared to the S&P 500. Okay, so S&P 500 over the past 10 years is up 267%, Aaron. The Spain, uh, MSCI Spain ETF, up only 4% in the last 10 years. Not per year, over the last 10 years, it's up 4%. Um, Italy up only 12.78% over the last 10 years. Okay, so those stock markets, not in a bubble. bubble. Japanese stocks, not a bubble. The total return for the MSCI Japan index since 1990 are 45% or 1.2% per year through the end of 2020. Let me repeat that. (laughs) The total returns over a 30-year period in one of the largest developed economies on the planet are around 1% per year. It's hard to believe that Japan was the biggest stock market in the world for a time in the late 80s, making up 45% of the global market cap. Japan now makes up around 8% of the total. Value stocks, not in a bubble. Growth stocks have been beating the pants off value stocks for a number of years now. The total return of the Russell 1000 growth over the past, or excuse me, since 2017 has been 142%. Since 2017, the Russell 1000 value total return has been 40%. S&P 500's total return since 2017 has been 86.05%. Energy stocks, definitely (laughs) not in a bubble. Energy stocks have been on a tear as of late, and the sector is up more than 50% since the start of November. One of the reasons they're up so much is because they've been down so much for so long. (laughs) The sector is basically break even, uh, giving investors a total return, including dividends, of just 9% total since 2007. And the entire sector still resides in a 44% drawdown from 2014 levels. Um, So the point of that, Aaron, was that there's pockets out there that aren't at all-time highs or that just broke to all-time highs for the first time in a really, really long time. Right, exactly. Um, So I look at areas of emerging markets and international markets with the weak dollar. That makes sense that those those, uh, countries are doing well. And I think that this is something that's here to last. So when you have um, you know, countries all around the world breaking out to all-time highs. Yeah. That's not bearish. I would, yeah, I would argue that 
making all-time highs is bullish for sure. Right, exactly. So, you know, depending on where you look and depending on who you talk to, again, you're always going to have people calling for the bubble that's going right. to pop, but um, I just don't fall into that camp. All right. So moving on to the financial planning topic of the week, it's another blog post by Ben Carlson titled, It's Okay to Build Wealth Slowly. And, you know, I've said several times before that I believe we're in this uh, age of instant gratification as a population. I'm not just talking about certain generations, even though, you know, the scapegoat is usually the (laughs) millennial generation for this type of stuff. Um, But I've seen it with people of all ages. Um, You know, we're kind of in the get rich uh, quick age and people are no longer willing to wait to generate wealth. And I think there's a major misconception out there that it's easy uh, to get rich quick. And it usually is described something like this, right? If I see a stock going up, I buy it until it starts going down. And people think that it's that easy, right? right? Um, but but that's dangerous because how do you define a stock going up? Is it making a 10-day a, a high? Is it making a new yearly high? How do you define a stock going right. up? And then on the flip side, how do you define a stock going down? Is it one day of negative performance or is it a year of negative performance? Right. Um, so it's a lot more complicated than that. And it's hard not to think... Um, you know, that it's this easy with social media these days because you have a lot of people on there touting how easy oh, it yeah. is. Well, they only talk about their, their winners. Their winners, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's a point that I'm going to get to here in, in this article. Um, so Ben starts this off by saying, I have a confession to make. I'm never going to make millions of dollars on a single investment. I'm never going to create a startup that changes the world and becomes a unicorn. I'm never going to get rich overnight. It's simply not in my DNA. So there was this guy uh, on Twitter, his name was Jason DeBolt, and he tweeted that he has about $12 million in Tesla stock, okay? Um, And he tweeted this, today I'm retiring from the corporate world at age 39, not selling any shares for the foreseeable future, uh, hashtag Tesla. And he took a screenshot of his account of almost $12 million in Tesla, and on today's you know, on, on this gain, I, I don't know exactly what date this was. He was up almost a million dollars a day in, in this Tesla stock. Um, and don't get me wrong. I'm, you know, I'm happy for this guy, yeah, right? Absolutely. If he can do that, then that's fine. But I would not be able to stomach having most of my net worth tied to one single stock. Yeah. I mean, it's all, it's all risk reward. Right. You know, it's just, me, I wouldn't be able to sleep at night, and I don't think most people <laughs> no. would be able to sleep no. at night, um, knowing that my net worth has the possibility of getting cut in half in a few trading days, right? Um, now, people could argue that several companies could go bankrupt on the same day, even if you hold 25 different stocks. However, you know, I think that the chance that that happens is extremely, extremely small. Right. The other part of this, Aaron, is no one on Twitter, no one knows this guy's full story or his situation, right? He might be coming in to a large inheritance in five or 10 years, or he might not be married. He might not have any dependents. So I think, like we said before, you really can't just go off of this one guy getting rich in Tesla because you don't know his personal right, situation. Yeah. You don't know the background. Right. You, you don't know his other assets. He might have more investment accounts that are more diversified. Who knows? Right. You know, so so he might be able to afford losing half of that value of Tesla stock. Um, so people, again, you have to think 
of your own personal situation and not just go off of, you know, <laughs> what people you tweeting. The, yeah, yeah, exactly. Tweeting this stuff. So Ben continues and says, but I'm okay with the fact that easy riches aren't at the cards for me. Instead, I've chosen the slower path to building wealth. There are some downsides to this path. I don't get to brag on social media about how much money I made on a high-flying stock or business venture. I don't get to become rich overnight. I don't get to become a guru who preaches the easy steps you can follow to become wealthy. I don't get to create a world-changing company. And I don't get to know what it's like to deal with a life-changing amount of money. It can be difficult to stick with your own investment plan when you see others hitting the jackpot during a raging bull market. But if there, or excuse me, but there are some upsides to being comfortable in your own skin as an investor. I'll never found a company that makes me fabulously wealthy, but I've also never worked 80 hours a week in a stressful job that causes other areas of my life to suffer. Yeah. So while I'll never understand what it's like to be the founder of a hot tech startup, I will always know what it's like to have dinner with my kids every night of the week or have my weekends free from the stresses of my job. And that's a big that's thing, a great point. again, that a lot of people don't talking about. When, you, when you're talking about financial planning, you're talking about investing, no one ever talks about the emotional side of it. And I think that's a big mistake. Right. Yeah. I mean, because having getting super rich isn't everything for everyone right exactly and what is what is your time worth for a lot of people spending time with your kids and growing up with your kids and being there for dinner every night is worth way more than starting you know the next tesla you know yeah for absolutely um and some people it's some people don't have kids so their time is worth more working on their company right so again it's a personal situation type of thing uh don't get me wrong it's Uh, It's great that we have people like Elon Musk or Steve Jobs who push the boundaries of technical innovation on our behalf. I'm just not a type A personality like them. I'll never put my life savings into a single investment that could go to the moon, but being a diversified investor means I'll never put my family in the position of being completely wiped out by a single position. I simply don't have the emotional makeup to take extreme positions when it comes to investing. Sometimes I wish I did, but it's important to remind myself for every Tesla investor who hit the lottery, there are thousands of other tickets that never hit. And like you said, Aaron, (laughs) these are the stories that are never shared on social media. It's always about the big winners. Absolutely. You don't hear about people that lost their whole life savings in it. No, because they're embarrassed and they don't want people to know that, right? But we love to brag. We love to brag about our positive things (laughs) in life. So much of the success for any investment or wealth building strategy comes down to your personality. For me, building wealth slowly over time suits my personality better than the alternatives. And the best part about building wealth slowly is it actually works, at least for me. And this is Ben talking, but I agree with him. Works for me too. Absolutely. (laughs) What ifs are useless when it comes to your finances? And I love that quote because everyone always talks about, well, if I just... You know, if I put a thousand dollars into the Amazon IPO or I put ten thousand dollars into GameStop five weeks ago, look what I could have had. Right. That never does any good. No. Because we can't, at least right now. I mean, hindsight's always twenty twenty. Twenty twenty. You can't go back in time and change that, right? So there's no use in going back and said I could have done this or I could have done that. Make changes now that'll help you going forward in the future. Yeah, it's sacrifice that 500 bucks a month we talked about earlier. Exactly, those little things. Exactly. Uh, He ends with, there are plenty of different ways to build wealth. The important thing to remember is you don't have to follow someone else's path just because it looks easy. 
So I thought that this was a really good piece and it's okay for people to get to the finish line by taking different routes, right? right absolutely. Um, so again, with all the craziness going on with, you know, all of these heavily shorted stocks in the market, I would recommend people stick to your plan, block out the media noise, invest for your own personal situation. If you have a high risk tolerance, that's More fine. Power to you. <laughs> More power to you. If you don't, then that's okay too. Absolutely. You don't have to have a very high risk tolerance for this stuff, right? And still be okay and be right. able to make yeah. money, right? Yeah. Um, so I thought that that was, that was a really good one. So this was a Ben Carlson heavy podcast today. <laughs> so uh, shout out to Ben for all the good work that he's been doing. Um, already went over the uh, listener question we had for the week, Aaron. So is yeah. there anything else that you wanted to mention before we kind of leave it here for the week? No, it was good. Thanks for having me on. I was uh, glad to be a part of this podcast. Okay. Well, thanks everyone for listening to the 82nd episode of the Independent Advisors podcast. Hope you all have a wonderful rest of the week. And uh, just before we sign off here, Aaron, I just want to let listeners know that they can now find our show notes in the episode description of whatever podcast app that they're listening on. So if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, uh, Breaker, We're going to have links to the show notes there instead of our website, Um, and we'll do our best to help share some of these articles on social media as well. So that's what we're going to be doing the show notes from now on. Awesome. All right. All right, everybody. We'll be back next week. So thanks for tuning in. Uh, Have a great weekend. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. And also check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. Here you'll find links to every episode of The Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words, questions, and topics in the subject line to Mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com, and we'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.